Episode 7, Kant's Groundwork on the Metaphysics of Morals. Kant takes the discussion of ethics in a very different direction than the utilitarians of Bentham and Mill. His starting assumption clearly rejects using happiness or pleasure as a basis for morality, although they all agree that an appeal to reason is critical for establishing a universal ethical perspective. He begins his book, A Groundwork for the Metaphysics of Morals, with a classical context. The ancient Greek philosophers broke philosophy into three areas, ethics, physics, and logic. Logic is concerned with reason itself and the rules which guide our understanding without any consideration of the objects of the world. Logic cannot have any empirical aspect. Remember, empirical means derived from sense data, the experience of the world. If it were empirical, it would not be universal for all rational beings. 3 times 3 times 3 is 27. If you understand the concepts of 3 and multiplication, you know this is true and you do not need to count up objects to verify it. It's true for us now in the past or the future, and indeed true for any rational being. If an alien from a distant galaxy were to visit us, the alien would also agree. I do need to pull some fancy jargon here. Uh, I will go into detail later. Kant uses it. Ideas or concepts which come from experience are called a posteriori. Kant argued in his Critique of Pure Reason, that we have concepts which are not derived or based upon experience, and these he calls a priori. Ideas based only on experience, the a posteriori, are therefore not universal. They are limited to a specific being and its experiences. While logic is not concerned with the external world, both ethics and physics are concerned with the world in which we find ourselves. In other words, ethics and physics have an empirical element. We experience objects or events in the world which makes them empirical. We might say these are areas of material philosophy. The material philosopher examines the material world and attempts to understand it. Material philosophy looks at the application of laws on these objects of our world. In the case of physics, we try to understand objects or events through the laws of nature. For ethics, we employ the laws of freedom. So just as physics is both empirical and rational, ethics has an empirical part called practical anthropology and a rational part called ethics. The laws of nature describe or dictate how things happen, but the laws of freedom describe how things should happen or ought to happen. When we consider these fundamental laws which underpin the physical reality, we are invoking metaphysics. When we consider the laws which underpin ethics, we are considering the metaphysics of morals, hence the title of his book. His first section is titled, The Transition from the Common Rational Knowledge of Morals to the Philosophic. Here, Kant directly challenges utilitarian and consequentialist approaches. I quote, Nothing in the world, indeed nothing even beyond the world, can possibly be conceived which could be called good 
without qualification except a good will. End quote. There are many things in the world which are good, such as wealth, health, happiness, maybe power, courage. He gives a big list. But all of these are good in a qualified sense, in a limited sense. The pursuit of any of them without the direction of a good will can lead to bad ends. They are good only when guided by a good will, including happiness. Consequentialism, as an ethical approach, is also wrong because the good will is not good because of some result or some intended effect. A good will must be good in itself. There is a phrase which Kant would agree with. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Let's think about this idea for a moment. The result or effect of an action has no moral worth. What does he mean? Imagine a man is walking along a sidewalk which has a three meter high wall. He notices that a small child is crawling along the top but losing its balance. He reacts quickly. The child falls. The man reacts to catch the child. While the act was good, in a sense, sure, his action was merely a reflex action, like anybody would do it. For Kant, this has no moral worth. Or take an example closer to the one that Kant uses. A shop owner sees someone who does not know the prices of what he's, he's buying. The shop owner could easily trick the person into paying more, but he decides at the last minute to keep the prices fair with the hope of retaining this person as a future customer. His act might be good in one sense, but because it is ultimately driven by the desires of money or greed, it has no moral worth. Moral worth depends completely on a person employing a good will. What makes a good will, you might be wondering? Well, the law of freedom looks at the laws by which things ought to happen. The word ought is key, and ought implies a duty. So simply doing an act out of a sense of duty is all one needs? Not so fast. Let's imagine a duty to be nice to other people generally. A person comes along who is always friendly and cheerful, always trying to help others. Their act of kindness to someone is nothing special either. Kant points out that if that same person had a mind clouded by sorrow to the point where there was no thought whatever about sympathy to other people, yet in spite of the very strong disinclination to do the right thing, the person reflects on their duty and acts. Here we have something of moral worth. His second principle, uh, quote, it's a long quote, an action done from duty derives its moral worth not from the purpose which is to be attained by it, but from the maxim by which it is determined, and therefore does not depend on the realization of the object of the action, but merely on the principle of volition by which the action has taken place, without regard to any object of desire. It is clear from what precedes that the purpose which we may have in our view, in our action, or the their effects regarded as ends and incentives of the will, cannot give to actions any unconditional or moral worth. In what, then, can their worth lie?
if it is not to consist in the will in reference to its expected effect. It cannot lie anywhere but in the principle of the will without regard to the ends which can be attained by the action. For the will stands between its a priori principle, which is formal, and its a posteriori incentive, which is material, as between two roads. And as it must be determined by something, it follows that it must be determined by the formal principle of volition when an action is done from duty, in which case every material principle has been withdrawn from it. His third principle, quote, duty is the necessity of an action out of respect for the law, end quote. He is restating his points, but adding some nuances. Quote, now, an action done from duty must wholly exclude the influence of inclination, and with it every object of the will, so that nothing remains which can determine the will except objectively the law and the subjectively pure respect for this practical law, and consequently the maxim that I should follow this law even to the thwarting of all my inclinations. But by the subjective principle of volition, he means a maxim. We as people are both rational and physical, i.e. non-rational. We have desires, and he knows our rational abilities are at times shaky. But we need to create, subjectively, a maxim which can be formulated as a moral law, a practical law, he might say. How can we create a maxim for our action which appeals exclusively to reason and has been stripped completely of any personal incentives or desires? One trick is to will that my maxim should become a universal law. If the maxim is made into a universal command of action, but results in a logical contradiction, we as rational beings will know that the maxim is not moral. The example he gives in the first section concerns making promises. Suppose you're thinking of breaking your promise to someone. Well, make a maxim for your projected action. Universalize it. Let everyone break their promises. Clearly, if everyone starts breaking promises, promises become meaningless. In fact, it becomes impossible to make promises. So, it is logically incoherent or self-contradictory as a maxim. Therefore, it cannot be a moral action. And, quote, I do not, therefore, need any far-reaching penetration to discern what I have to do in order that my volition may be morally good. Inexperienced in the course of the world, incapable of being prepared for all its contingencies. I only ask myself, can you also will that your maxim should be a universal law? If not, then it must be rejected. And that, not because of a disadvantage accruing from it to myself, or even to others, but because it cannot enter as a principle into a possible universal legislation, and reason extorts from me immediate respect for such legislation. Quote. Or, he says, acting from 
Pure respect for the practical law is what constitutes duty, to which every other motive must give place, because it is the condition of a will that is good in itself, and the worth of such a will is above everything. Kant ends this first section with a small observation on human nature, too. He knows that we are pushed by our desires. Happiness is a deriver of our actions. But by engaging in rational reflection of our maxim, by stripping it of our personal inclinations and desires, we begin a dialectic with ourselves and become philosophers, philosophers of practical philosophy. There's a lot to chew over in this uh, first section. I will leave another aspect to ponder. If moral worth results from this internal formulation of a maxim and the contemplation of its logical extensions, moral worth cannot be projected onto someone by observers. Like Only you will know if your action has moral worth or not. I might make a guess. I think you're doing some, some action out of a sense of duty and against your personal interests. Maybe it has moral worth. But it's only a guess for me. Only you will know. Maybe you're sacrificing your personal interests. You're acting from a sense of duty. But you think, I'll become famous. Uh, the newspapers will show me. So you might have, you could have a motive that I'm unaware of. So for me, for the observers, it's a guess. Only you will know if you're moral. Next up will be section two and his detailing of the categorical imperative.